Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Well, here we are. I mean, by the way, it's Guy Adami joined Dan Nathan Danimos. Week 14 in the NFL. I only lead with that because something is remarkable that's going on out there. Now, the best prognosticators out there, literally the best, maybe they're 50% against the spread. Maybe. Danny Moses, as of this taping, you are 18 and 2. I can do that math. That's 90% success rate. Speak to that, please. I don't know, man. But I said on Trading Spaces the other day, when I get one wrong, I have two wrong, the market got destroyed the following Monday and Tuesday, both times. So hopefully the bulls out there are rooting for me to get it right again and take more money from Dan Nathan, who currently owes me Forty-five hundred. Forty-five hundred. Should we just do a double or nothing and get this thing over with, Danny? I think that would be that, that would be the death knell for your pick. <laughs> I think, but that's aggressive. I mean, think that's nine dimes if it goes the wrong way. All right. Well, you're gonna have to stick around to the end of this conversation to see what happens. Absolutely. Here. Well, look, you are listening to on the tape, Guy Adami here, joined as always. And by the way, we're gonna be closing in on a year really soon. Dan Nathan, Danny Moses. A lot's going on this week. Now, we're taping this on a Thursday. So when this drop, that's what they call it, right, Dan Nathan? When it drops into your inbox, my chances are that CPI number will be out. And God only knows what that's going to be. But what I'll tell you did come out, jobless claims came in at 184,000. That's a 52-year low. I remember that because I was 36 at the time, and I was shocked at the number then, and I'm shocked at it now. You have a lot of other things going on. I know, Danny, you want to talk about GameStop, the broader market, the 210, the Fed, all these things going on. But I just like to lead with the following. All the things we talk about, all the headwinds that the market's facing, tensions with China and Taiwan, situation with Russia and Ukraine, all those things seemingly don't matter. The variant's been put in the rearview mirror. Nobody seems to care that the Fed is tapering. And oh, by the way, they might have to speed up that taper. Market's impervious, Danny Moses. Well, time of year is definitely the market's friend here. If we can get through another kind of week here, things should slow down. No one wants to see the market sell off now, although it's selling off here as we speak. It's had a couple of huge days earlier this week, so it's just taking a breather. But yeah, 2 to 3% maybe off of its all-time highs. I keep watching the uh, Fed Fund Futures trade on that CME Fed Watch tool, and it's growing by the day that they're going to go more than once, probably twice, and it's accelerating on that timeline right now. So to me, I think that's what the market's going to be watching, and we don't have to deal with it right now maybe, but we do have a Fed meeting next week. We're gonna, so we're going to get the CPI dropping tomorrow. Expectations for November are 6.7%, which I think would be the highest in another 40 years or something like that. So we'll see. I think it's just a lot to absorb over these last few days. And I'll say this, they at least, however they got it done, they got the debt ceiling issue pushed a little bit. So kick the can there too, just increase the debt another $2.5 trillion. But one thing's certain, this economy and, these st- and the stock market can't handle sustained higher rates. And that 
we do know. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, though, that there's so much focus on the CPI number. I mean, you know, the Fed already did that about face, right? They already said that inflation is no longer transitory, at least in the way they were using that expression. So I I just don't understand. So let's just say we come in at 6.9%. It just actually bolsters the case for what the Fed did in the last couple of weeks. And so if it came in really soft, well, what does that do? If it comes in really soft, I mean, so to me, nothing's going to change in the next week or so. I mean, you use this expression all the time that Powell has kind of painted himself in a bit of a corner here. And we also know that when he has to change his tune, he will. I mean, he did that in Q4 of 2018 when the stock market was in a free fall because of the rate hiking that they were doing. Dan, I will say... I. I agree with you, not trading data points here and there, but let's look what happened. Yes, he took the word out transitory, but then they're talking about accelerating, right? They kind of, all the Fed governors kind of gather, talk about accelerating taper, which means raising sooner. And I would never trade just one data point, but I think the fact that people did perceive that he maybe went a little bit more aggressive than they thought, there happens to be a Fed meeting next week. So I actually think if it is a high print, People will start to pull forward these these Fed rate hikes, and that will have an impact, you know, on these stocks. So I agree with you, not trading one for the other, but things did change. It's he's pulled forward the the taper, and he's pulled forward when the, when they can raise rates. But I guess my point is, is like based on what we know, and to Guy's point, that at some point in the last ten or fifteen years, the Fed's dual mandate. What did it What did it turn into, Guy? Fed's dual mandate is to make sure both the S and P five hundred and the Nasdaq goes higher, Dan Nathan. Yeah. So my, I guess my point is, is like, <laughs> okay, so they're gonna they're gonna taper because they had to. They already made the policy mistake. So the policy mistake was to continue to buy one hundred and twenty billion dollars worth of bonds a month. You know, after like the economy had already been saved, right, during the pandemic. So the mistake has already been made. So at this point, yeah, they're going to taper the bond purchases. But I have no, I don't give a shit where the Fed fund futures are saying they're going to okay. start raising raising rates because we know it's out the window. It doesn't matter. If the stock market sells off, they're going to slow down. Dan, two wrongs don't make a right. And I, again, I agree with you, but I don't. Where I disagree with you is that this is driving the market. I don't, whether you like it or not, doesn't matter. You are getting a message from the market that the 210 spread continues to shrink. Why is that? Because people believe longer term that the Fed goes. And to your point, Dan, the two wrongs would be they waited too long to do it and then they overdo it and it creates a massive slowdown. And I think that's the fear. And I'll tell you this, the debt ceiling getting fixed for the near term isn't a positive if you wanted inflation not to run hot or give the Fed an excuse to slow down. So I hear you, Dan, but that we have seen iterations for the last five, six years when the Fed's ready to go, the market pauses, and it is, it is you know, prone to go lower on that. So that's all. I get all that. But what evidence do we have over the last 15 years that the Fed is going to overdo it on the hawkish side? That we have no evidence of that. So so that, that's kind of my point. Just because the two-year went from 20 bips to where it is at you know 67 bips or something like that. So that's telling you that the Fed has definitely shifted their tune. But I have no reason to believe that the Fed is going to continue to raise rates in the way in which they did in the lead up to that sell-off in the fall of 2008. 18. If the market goes down precipitously, they will get more dovish. It's just that simple. You just answered your own question. I agree with you. So, but what the end result of that is the market going lower. I think we both agree on that, whether they go once, twice or whatever. So I think, I think the market's just taking a deep breath. And because it's almost mid-December, that's all. We don't have to harp on this. We can move on. Yeah. And let's move on because Dan mentioned changing your tune. It's funny. And I think it was the second Rocky movie. I think that was called Rocky 2. Burgess Meredith, I think he played the penguin in Batman. He actually, when they were in this gym in a hotel 
which was much too posh for Rocky, and they had a piano player, and he was playing sort of the Rocky theme, and Burgess Meredith turned around and said, change your tune. I don't know why that sticks with me. It just does. I encourage you, again, to go to your local blockbuster. Maybe you get a twofer. You can get the big chill along with Rocky too. but I digress. Somebody who hasn't changed her tune, though, has been Kathy Wood. And one, something I mentioned on Fast Money earlier this week, Dan, Nathan, I'm curious your thoughts. It's interesting. Obviously, the amount of times now that she's on television, I think, is fascinating. But so many of the stocks that make up that portfolio of the ARK ETF are being taken out to the woodshed. And that doesn't speak to her ability to pick stocks. What it speaks to is valuation is becoming a concern for the broader market. Yeah, and I think it speaks to what Danny just mentioned. If rates are going to be higher to some degree, right? The valuation for companies that are not growing the way in which they were, maybe because of their business models were accelerated during the pandemic, you're dealing with deceleration, you're dealing with high valuations, and now you're going to have to deal with a higher rate environment, which to Danny's credit, I mean, we've been talking about this for months now, is that the likelihood that we see a decelerating growth economically, definitely here in the US, because we came out of the pandemic earlier and we actually hit it the hardest with all the stimulus, it just, stocks need to be revalued. So Guy, you made this point earlier, the fact that Kathy Wood, you look up every day and you see her on CNBC talking her book, the fact that the top 10 names in her ARK Innovation ETF, and again, we're not picking on Kathy Wood. She's obviously been a fantastic investor with some really great themes for a very long time. But the fact that she's doing it just says to me, Guy, she's in the business of asset gathering. So when she goes on CNBC and she sounds really smart, hey, listen, we'd love to have her on our podcast and hear the names, there's new people that see it and they probably say, oh, I want to invest with that woman. She seems really smart. The one thing I'm going to tell you though, here's the effect of that. We're looking at the stock market right now. It's Thursday. It's right before the close here. And the NASDAQ is down 1.7%. We're seeing some devastation in a lot of those names, a lot of those big holdings in her portfolio. But one stock that she talked about this morning, Twitter, is green. It's up on the day. It's up a percent and a half. It was up 4% earlier. So she has some sway right now. Dan, I think you hit it on the head. Most of her stocks are based on themes, not fundamentals. And so you're, you're buying themes. And whenever I see that she's on CNBC or she's out, I know the market's down, or I normally think it's down because we talked about this last week. I don't want to pick on her either, but she will be the poster child or the poster person when this market does roll over. And if it does roll over, th- this will be what people will look at. That, And we can talk about stocks here that don't trade on fundamentals. What is the buy point when stocks stop their momentum? When do you buy them? And she has many of those to concern herself with. Well, let's talk about that. By the way, Sway, I believe, was off of Sticky Fingers 50 years, five zero years ago, 1971, Rolling Stones. That's off the top of my head, by the way, Danny Moses, in case you care. One of these things that, you know, I don't know if you have any sway over these investors or traders or Reddit crowd or WSB crowd, GameStop. I mean, it, the math just doesn't work on this one. And I know you have some thoughts on GameStop, but it's a 12 12- billion dollar company last I looked and the numbers just don't add up, Dan Moses. Yeah, listen, again, I'm not short it. I don't want people that are long out there to think that, you know, a short seller is coming after them. It's just frustrating to me to watch. They lost $100 million in the quarter. What do they say? We're doing blockchain, web 3.0, and NFT. But great. That's like the dot-com in 1999 when people would add that to their strategy, right? Same exact thing. Eight-minute conference call, no Q&A as usual. Sales, $1.3 billion. Okay. They're going to maintain sales as a focus, and they don't care about losses. They actually said that on their call. They have $1.4 billion in cash. 
how is this thing a 12, 13 billion market cap company? It makes no sense. They're going to continue to lose money here. So it's just frustrating. Yeah, the stock's down today. It shouldn't even be anywhere near here, but people will hold on. They'll hold hold on for dear life on this thing. It's frustrating to me to watch this. And don't blame the short sellers when this stock goes back to 40 bucks because it's not the fault of them. It's the fault of the long holders that hold on too long here. So on this meme stock thing, I feel like we're bookending 2021 talking. We spent a lot of time talking about it in January and here we are again. Our friend, Wall Street Cynic, at Wall Street Cynic, you guys know him as Jim Chanos. He was tweeting about AMC this morning. I thought it was really interesting because Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, had a tweet out shortly after the opening. NFTs are a superb idea, but not a one per share security token NFT dividend as repeatedly described on Twitter. It is likely illegal, breaches our debt covenants and or exposes AMC to huge litigation risk. We can't do it. Beware of concepts that sound easy and too good to be true, which is really interesting. So Chanos quote tweets a guy, you know how to quote tweet something. And he says, Mm, of course, the AMC apes don't believe him. Okay. And then he had another tweet um, later on. He said, don't look now, apes, but the AMC short interest continues to drop and was just reported to 83.4 million shares as of November 30th by the NYSC. So this is really interesting, Danny. What Jim's trying to highlight the fact is that at least the CEO is trying to be honest. He's trying to engage with the shareholders, right? Who are coming up with all these crazy ideas, like you just said, with GameStop. Still a $15 billion market cap company. He's basically categorically denying that they can do NFTs in a way that might unlock some shareholder value or something like that. But now the short interest is is dropping. Danny, what does that mean to you? Well, I'm sure you guys will hit on this later with Jeff Mills when you guys are talking to him about meme stocks in general. But I think Chanos is just pointing out the facts. Rest assured that there was a bondholder or somebody or a lawyer that called up Aaron and said, by the way, you really can't do this because we have really strict covenants. And so we kind of walked it back a little bit. I will say this as far as Aaron goes. I, I actually believe that he wants to help retail investors. He wants the stock to go up. I don't think he's doing anything nefarious. I think he really believes. But the problem is when your main constituency of holders doesn't have institutional sponsorship, it's hard to maintain this. And I think that's the other area, Dan, that people don't understand. You can hate Wall Street all you want if you're a retail investor and you want to own AMC. You can stick it to the man. But there's less sticking it to the man, the less short interest that there is. Because the only buyer that you know that will always exist is a short seller who has to cover and buy back the stock at some point. So he's just pointing out statistics and technicals that just jive. And so again, I throw AMC into the other camp. Am I short? No. Is it something I would be long? Absolutely not. Does it deserve to be this market cap? No. But again, these will be the poster children. It's interesting that both of these stocks are trading at multi-month lows here. It just seems like some of the air is coming out of it. And I'll just highlight this. And I know this wasn't in our rundown. Sorry, people. Look at what's going on with this Lucid. So Lucid started taking off. I think it was like in the low 20s, right into that Rivian deal. Tesla was going berserk and it went from 20 to like, I don't know, the mid 50s or something like that. Day like today, it's down 17.5%. We know the SEC was looking into something with their SPAC deal, but it's just interesting. It seems like a lot of this stuff is coming unwound. And this hit the market today on Thursday. Just some of this action. I don't know if you guys saw this yesterday. Roku, that's obviously a big Kathy Wood name. That was up like, I think, 17, 18% at one point yesterday. And then today it was down like 10% at one point. We're seeing like some crazy volatility both ways in some of these names that are already broken. Well, Dan, I can explain Lucid. On top of the SEC investigation, they sneak in a $1.75 billion convert that comes out this morning on top of an SEC investigation. So here they are issuing debt to raise money here. So that threw fuel onto the fire there for that one. So that that's why you're seeing, I think, the extended sell-off in that name for sure. All right. So, so Danny Moses, when you do that thing that 
Danny Moses to the center stage. Could you do that for me? Because I want to set some. Please indulge me for a second. You want to welcome myself? You want to welcome you to the front stage? No, I want you to welcome Danny Moses to the front center, whatever stage (laughs) you want to go on. (laughs) Let's welcome Danny Moses front stage. I know it's December, but get your 2021 calendars, two for one special. Tip your waiters and waitresses. How was that, guys? It's so good. Is that good? And on the back of that, Danny Moses on the center stage, we have a DC three-part series here for you, okay? This is a DC (laughs) threesome. AWS, testifying on Capitol Hill, and I'm going to save the last one, but it's an NFL pick. So rattle it off to me, Demo. All right. So what happened on Tuesday? Two things. Amazon Web Services went down in the morning, and you realize everything. They control, I think, 33% of global cloud infrastructure followed by Microsoft and Google, which are 20 and 10% respectively. Delta Airlines can't do. iRobot vacuum stop working. Colleges can't give exams. Cat litter boxes don't empty. And all the fulfillment and delivery of Amazon. That coincided, strangely enough, at the exact same time that President Biden was on with Putin, you know, talking about Ukraine and the infractions over there and all the stuff and, Putin, and Biden basically threatening him. Biden also saying he's, he's willing to pull his approval of Nord Stream 2, over in Germany so they can run natural gas from Russia over into Germany. All these things happen at the same time. I find it a crazy coincidence that that happened. And I will tell you, Amazon's, I read somewhere that they said they had an unprecedented amount of messaging coming into that server center in Northern Virginia that caused this. So maybe it was nothing, but I find that a little too much of a coincidence. If Tom Clancy was still alive, I think we'd, we'd be reading about it soon. Sounds like a Homeland episode. I mean, I'm with you on this one. I'm not a big believer in coincidence. I thought the same thing. You're just reinforcing my belief system. We are dogmatic together. Let's be independent together. It's like Rudolph and Hermie. Next, please, Danny Moses. The crypto hearings in D.C. occurred yesterday, and you had you know six major executives come out in, from all different parts of the crypto universe. Dan can opine on this, I'm sure. Coinbase is one of the people testifying. What happens today, the day, the day after that, unfortunately for them, is their systems are down for certain trading in, in Ethereum, I believe, right now. System maintenance. So not a good look for the crypto industry on a volatile day in crypto and the markets in general to have that happen. So that was part two of the DC. And I'll tell you this, this stablecoin, this tether thing that keeps kind of happening and the news that keeps coming out, every time we see a move, what happened to, What happened today? Fitch downgraded Evergrande today, the debt. And there, there looks like they're missing payments here for sure. So there is a restructuring coming. Does it have an impact on the stablecoin market? Well, if it does, that's not going to help regulatory situation in DC as far as crypto goes. We're going to wait on part three of the DC three. Dan, Nathan, listen, they talk about the crypto people, the ballers talk about the volatility in crypto being a characteristic, not a bug. Well, you had a huge characteristic over the weekend when that sucker basically went from the high 50s to the mid 40s in terms of Bitcoin. Thoughts on the crypto? I know you're an ETH over BTC. I'll just say this. That last week was Art Basel in Miami, and it really was taken over by, it was like NFT week down there. And I, and I spent uh, 30 hours down there at the end of the week. And just, you know, the enthusiasm about these protocols and, and all the stuff that's being built on top of this, it's just, it's just palatable. I mean, these people are all in, but that doesn't preclude from sell-offs happening, right? And the underlying, and we see that into some of these big crypto weeks that there's a lot of enthusiasm, the coins rally, and then on the 
way out, you see the price come off a little bit. We also know in Bitcoin that there are places around the world where there's a lot of leverage, right? And so when you start to see it go lower, and Bitcoin has been massively underperforming Ethereum over the last few months and year to date on a massive level, they just take out you know the margin and you see those sorts of flash crash sort of moves that we saw over the weekend. And I will say this, that since China moved mining, you know, Bitcoin mining out and banned it, we've seen them far less. We haven't really seen it since the spring or summer. There was one back in November that was during the day. So, you know, again, I I think the point that you make, Guy, the volatility is a feature, not a bug. I guess the real worry would be that after the run-up that we saw in 2017, that was largely retail driven, there were ICOs, it was a a free-for-all. You saw a very long bear market. I mean, crypto did not really get off the mat until we were in the throes of the pandemic in the summer of 2020. And then you saw these fabulous sort of returns. So I think that, you know, the thing that would turn that feature, not a bug thing upside down is if we were to have a 50, 60% decline, and then it stays down there for a long period of time. We did have one from April down until the summer, but it ricocheted back very quickly. So we'll see. The last time the New York Knicks won the NBA championship, Dan Nathan, was in 1973. They beat the Lakers of Los Angeles, who I believe were playing in the Forum. Ain't playing in the Forum anymore. Ain't playing in the Staples Center anymore, Danny Moses. They're playing in something they're going to call what, please? Because this is just, you talk about signs of ringing the bell. Well, this is one of them. Welcome to Crypto.com Arena. We signed a 20-year deal worth $700 million. So I saw that last week. I know we didn't talk about it at all, but then it reminded me of things that are named after things. And every time one of these happens, someone brings it up. So I went back and looked. CMGI Stadium in 2000, that became Gillette Field. Enron Field in 1999 in Houston, that became Minute Maid Park. PSI Net Stadium in 1999 in Baltimore became M&T Stadium. AmeriQuest Field, a name near and dear to my heart during the subprime crisis. Home to the Texas Rangers, largest subprime debacle, that was 2004. And what do we see today? Evergrande. Guangzhou Stadium for soccer, gone. They just pulled that from them. So a lot of things happening there. But then I thought of one other thing, if I may rot. Please. If I may rip off the tape. There's also schools that are named after certain things. You know, people dedicate libraries and things. And every once in a while, they get embarrassed. And they're forced to maybe pull their names off. We saw that with the Sacklers a lot, you know, during the opioid crisis and so forth. So on. But Michael Steinhardt, Wall Street legend, 80-year-old man. You know, he's been around the block here a few times. I saw something very interesting, which plays into if you have enough money and you're established enough, you can avoid jail time, right? But this is crazy. So Vance opened up an investigation in 2017 that that shows that Michael Steinhardt was using smugglers to acquire over $70 million worth of artifacts from Iraq, from Libya. These are all pulled out like during war and crisis. 11 countries total, 12 smuggling networks used by used Tomb Raiders. He actually sold some of these artifacts. So they caught him. He was and he kind of did admit to what he was doing, but they said, all right, here's the deal. You can return all of these pieces and we don't care what it's going to cost you and we're going to ban you from acquiring any antiquities going forward what's the definition of an antiquity things created before the year 1500 okay so that's a real harsh punishment there however the nyu school of the steinhardt school of cultural education and human development because he made a 20 million donation years ago i'm not quite sure that thing's going to stick anymore with the culture education i call me crazy but he ain't harrison ford from raiders of the lost ark he was actually doing the opposite so maybe he'll be trafficking in modern day artifacts i don't know but i mean 
The guy steals $70 million worth, gets nothing, a slap on the wrist, basically, he's got to give him back. So if someone else had done something similar to that and didn't have the means to kind of get the best lawyers, they'd be in jail. So that's my rot kind of thing. That is straight out of Indiana Jones. By the way, I loved (laughs) Denholm Elliott. That's a great pull by me. Of course, he played Marcus Brody. Marcus Darling, of course, if you remember the great movie Boomerang. I can do this all day long, but I won't. You know why I won't? Because it's week 14 in the league where they play for pay. And as I mentioned earlier, Danny Moses is a staggering 18 and two. That's 18 and two against the spread. That's a 90% win ratio. So, Danny, you mentioned the three, the threesome in DC. My sense is the Washington Football Club is one of your picks. It is a pick involving them. But I know Dan's going to jump on Washington when he realizes I'm picking Dallas here. So Dallas is going on the road. They're five and one, by the way, Dallas against the spread on the road. Washington, yes, they've won several games in a row. They haven't beaten many great teams, but they did win in a row. And if you remember, when they beat the Buccaneers, they got this whole thing kind of started. Buccaneers were missing a lot of offensive weapons, including Gronkowski and Antonio Brown. And Brady came out and threw two interceptions. Chase Young is out for the year, and Logan Thomas is out. And that's, he's, a, he's a nice security blanket here for Washington. So Dallas, Jerry Jones out there yesterday saying, my wide receivers are running the wrong routes. That probably came from Dak. I think they rally. They're a better road team than they are home team. I'm laying the four with Dallas in Washington. Dan Nathan, what do you got? Yeah, I'll take Washington plus four for a nickel. Okay, a nickel. Wow. Not as strong as you had suggested. My second game, I know you're going to take the other side of this too. The Buffalo Bills, which just played in a windstorm, and a frustrating game for them. Could have won, but they didn't. Patriots were one of my picks last week. I think they're, they're going to come in fired up to Tampa Bay. Brady has struggled against this coach Buffalo before. And I'll tell you this. This one, something's got to give here. Tampa 4-1 and one at home against the spread. Buffalo 4-2 and two on the road against the spread. I like getting what has now turned into three and a half points, by the way. When I first started looking at it, it was three. But Dan, we can just do three. That'll be fine. And I will tell you, Buffalo has not lost two in a row all year. And since week five, it's been win-loss, win-loss, win-loss. And I expect a win here, maybe even outright, but I'm not willing to be that crazy against Brady. So I'm taking the Bills plus three and a half in Tampa Bay. Dan, yeah, I'm going to take the Buccaneers laying three because you did say that I could have the three. That's laying fine. Three you need a break for yeah. 500. A nickel. Yeah, I That's like it. that. Okay. Got so it. he does. He doesn't need. He doesn't want it. He wants that hook. He's given back. He, he wants it back in his hands. <laughs> Let me say this about that Buffalo game. And if you recall last week, I thought the Colts would run for 250 yards. I was I was actually you were right close. on guy. The man. I'll yep. say this. I think the Bills walk in there. This is going to be a statement game. This will be the game that that puts the Bills in position to be in the Super Bowl this year. I don't think they just beat Tampa Bay. I think they smoke them. I think Buffalo has a huge game in them this week, Danny Moses. Let's not get crazy. Let's just take the three points and not go bananas here. So two games this week. Danny Moses looking to go 20-2. and two. 20 and 2 against the spread by the end of week 14. That is remarkable. You know what else is remarkable? Jeff Mills. We call him the general. You know him on CNBC's Fast Money. Dan knows him as a lax guy from the University of Pennsylvania. You're going to get to know him a lot better coming right up. With CME Group's micro sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, 
and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Jeff Mills is the Chief Investment Officer at BMT Wealth Management, where he is responsible for investments across Bryn Mawr Trust, including asset allocation and investment research. Prior to joining BMT, he was Managing Director and Co-Chief Investment Strategist for PNC Financial Services Group. You may also recognize him from his time on Fast Money. We call him the general. Today, we're calling him our guest. Welcome to On The Tape. Jeff Mills, before you even utter a word, I want to say something. So Fast Money, if we make it to January, and I've been saying if now for the last 14 and a half years, it'll be 15 years on air. And a lot of people have come and gone. But I can say without equivocation that you're the best new person that's come on literally in the last 10 years. And I am thrilled that you're joining us here on the tape. I got to say one thing, and I don't think I've ever been more scared than I was the first time I set foot on the NASDAQ to go on Fast Money. I mean, I was horrified. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to walk from behind the cameras to in front of the cameras. And you guys did a very good job of slowly making me feel comfortable over time. So it really is the highlight of my week every week. It's so much fun. Uh, and I appreciate you guys having me. That's really funny, Jeff, because the first time that I went on CNBC's Fast Money, it was a little more than 10 years ago. I think regular on-the-tape viewers or listeners have already heard this before, but they did not make me feel comfortable. I think that they were a little bit worried maybe of just the heat that was coming their way. The first time I stood on the end of the desk to do a little segment, it was on AMAT's earnings. Not one of them looked up and said hi, except Melissa Lee, as you would expect. Well, before you even respond to that, Jeff Mills, just let me say the following. A, I don't remember that. And two, there was this scene, I think it was either Platoon or one of those movies, where they talk about in the nom, as the guys say, you didn't get to know the new people because you didn't think they were going to last that long anyway. So you didn't invest the time to get there, know the name. And that was my mindset back then. I've matured a great deal since then, Dan Nathan. Well, so listen, Dan and I share one thing in common. That's we both were lax bros at the University of Pennsylvania. So I think maybe he was used to a little hazing there. He got a little hazing during his early days at Fast Money. And I think if anybody came at me a little bit during those early days, it was Mr. Dan Nathan. So he kept me on my toes a little bit, but I appreciate that. I think that made me feel like part of the group too. I would echo the fact that I think you've been a great addition and it's been a lot of fun to have some just kind of new perspectives. The show's called Fast Money. You're anything but that as far as the way you think about investing from a strategy standpoint, but you have tremendous range and you can talk about all the short-term movements and kind of your inclinations as you would think about stocks and how they trade and markets broadly. Yeah, I am more of a slow money kind of guy. So it's nice to be able to bring that perspective to the show. My background is really macro investment strategy. Before my current role, I was at PNC. I was the chief strategist there. So everything I'm used to doing is thinking about things through a business cycle lens and sector allocation, things of that nature. It really hasn't been until the past number of years where I'm managing an equity research team and things of that nature where I've gotten more granular in my analysis. But it's nice that I get to do a little bit of both now because I think one leads to the other. So Jeff, obviously your job, and Dan alluded to this, you're tasked with something much different. What do you think about the landscape right now, sort of macro landscape? I look around and there are a lot of things that are concerning. We've talked about bond yields. We've talked about 210 spreads. We've talked about currency moves. We've talked about so many different things. None of them seem to impact the broader market at all. The last couple of weeks notwithstanding. 
They haven't recently, but I'm starting to get a little bit more concerned, honestly, about next year. I think we have a little bit more left in cyclical trade. I'm feeling okay about the near term. I think Omicron ends up being kind of a big nothing burger. I do think the Fed is a bigger risk. But right now, credit spreads have been behaved. I think fourth quarter GDP obviously is going to be very strong. You'll probably get a hot inflation reading tomorrow. I think a lot of people are expecting that. So the market probably continues to look through it. But when I start to think about 2022 and how we're positioning our client portfolios, and to my earlier point, we're thinking a lot from an asset allocation standpoint. Do we want to be cyclical? Do we want to be more growthy? And it all depends on where we think we are in the business cycle. And I believe we're sort of moving from this balanced phase of the recovery where cyclicals still work into a period of time where you're going to see a slowdown in leading economic indicators. And usually when you see that, you start to see financial conditions tighten a little bit. You start to see PE ratios come down a little bit. And more often than not, the market starts to go towards stronger fundamentals versus something that might be considered a little bit more cyclical. So even when I look at what's been working in the market lately, it's been profitability. It's been high return on invested capital type companies. We looked in growth. We looked in value. We looked in small cap. What is working is profitability. And I think as we get into next year, this move higher that we've already seen in global interest rates starts to work its way through the economy. Things like PMI start to come off the boil a little bit. And I think you really want to start to move portfolios that maybe have been more cyclically oriented towards the more defensive, growthier areas of the market that are stably profitable. So that's how we're thinking about things right now. And we can get into a number of specific reasons why. But I think from a very high level, that's where we are. Yeah, Jeff, isn't that exactly what's been playing out the stock market over the last, let's say, three to six months? If you think about it, you've seen all the breath indicators and such, and you looked at the devastation that's gone on in some of these high growth unprofitable. So high growth unprofitable is down 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% in some instances, and you have a handful of stocks that are levitating the entire stock market. So to me, I look at the concentration in those names, and I know that a lot of people have been around a long time time to say, well, it's always been that way. There's always five or six names. They've never been this concentrated. There's never been five stocks that make up 25% of the weight of the S&P 500 or five stocks that make up nearly 50% of the NASDAQ 100 here. And I see that as equally bearish when you're crowding into Apple and it's trading at $175 near a $3 trillion market cap or Microsoft not far behind it, right? And then you see all of the devastation that's going on in SPACs, in recent IPOs, in unprofitable tech. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and something has to give because like you just said, all of a sudden now, for the first time in three years, we are dealing with a rising rate environment. Maybe not on that 10-year, but that two-year, the way it's going up. The two-year tells you that investors believe that the Fed's going to continue to go. And like you just said, that we're not going to stop for any of these variants any longer. And you've had some of these commodities come off pretty hard. I mean, crude oil went from what, 82 down to what, 65 or something like that. Now it's bounced a little bit, it's back near 70. But I just think that this whole theme that Danny Moses has been talking about for months now and on the tape about stagflation, that is the stock market killer. To your first point, let me hit you with this stat because I read it earlier today and I thought it was pretty interesting. So over the past three months in the S&P 500, you've had 257 stocks rally and they were good for about 316 index points. 20% of that gain was Microsoft and Apple. So that's exactly your point. And it's pretty stark when you look at it 
in those terms. So when you think about the index versus the devastation that's going on underneath the surface, it's such a huge dichotomy. Even I think last week, the average stock was down 14%. The index was only down two or three. So that is exactly the issue that we're dealing with. And I even think regardless of what the Fed ends up doing, and we can talk about the Fed, I think that they've boxed themselves into some horrible corner because they're going to be trying to finish tapering and then looking to hike rates just as leading economic indicators are rolling over, just as inflation is starting to trend lower again. And they're going to have a really hard time hiking rates. I think the yield curve is telling you that already right now. So that's a major issue. But the increase that we've already seen in global rates is the bigger issue to me because interest rates, Fed policy doesn't impact the market and the economy immediately. So it takes a little bit of time for a rise in interest rates to work its way through the economy. We've already seen global short rates increase a pretty significant amount. So my contention is as that works its way through the economy, say Q2 of next year, you get that rollover in PMIs. We use that as a proxy for the business cycle. When PMIs decline, commodity prices tend to trend down. Usually CPI tends to slow a little bit. And you get into a situation where investors are once again just going to be looking for growth wherever they can find it. I don't know that that's necessarily a healthy thing for the market, but when you're thinking about positioning, we're definitely looking at taking portfolios that we have right now that are overweight mid-cap, overweight small-cap, tilted toward value that have done okay this year to really reducing the cyclicality because of that environment. That's exactly right. Now, I want to talk about the Fed, but my next question was going to be exactly about positioning because if you think about it, and I know you know this, the last six months, nine months, Positioning is critical. You look up and the market is where it is, but if you're positioned incorrectly, a lot of people have gotten hurt really badly. How difficult is it to have the proper positioning in this environment? Look at just the way the market's trading today. It's hard to make sense of it. Even now, you've got financials down marginally. They were up. Then you also had staples up, utilities up, healthcare up, and then other things getting hammered. So you're sort of seeing some cyclicality, some not. Value and growth have kind of been flip-flopping all year. The market has really almost had no style this year, and it's very hard to position yourself based on those traditional style boxes. I think Chris Verone, our friend who's often on the show, he pointed out, and I really didn't know this, that small cap value has kept up with large cap growth this year. So when thinking about two opposite ends of the market that should not be moving together, there's a perfect example right there. So that's why I'm going back to profitability. That is going to be so critical. And it doesn't matter whether you're in value growth, small, large, that is where you want to be. I think it just so happens that technology has the highest concentration of highly profitable names. So when you think about AMD, Apple, AMAT, Microsoft, these are all names to Dan's point that haven't really suffered at all, but they kind of fit the bill in terms of what I think investors are going to be looking for as growth starts to slow and as people start to worry more about what the Fed ends up doing later next year. So let's talk about profitability here. Back to Apple, the most profitable company that's ever been on the planet here, the same you could say for Microsoft, but those stocks have not been immune to sell-offs. And Guy will often mention that over the last five or six years, Apple has had a handful of 30% plus peak to trough declines. Even this year, it started out this year, it sold off nearly 20% from its highs. There were two other 10% plus peak to trough declines. So one of the reasons I'm just focused on this 25% move since the start of October and and again, we've seen similar action in Microsoft or Tesla. Trees try to grow to the sky, but they don't. And I don't believe that some of these other sectors where you've seen massive earning revisions higher or year-over-year growth that is just dwarfing 
let's say it be in energy or something, they just will not be able to hold up the market if we see Microsoft and Apple and some of these big techs materially sell off at some point in 2022. Yeah, and that very much could be the case. And for us, it always becomes a little bit of a difficult equation because we're long all the time. Sometimes we can raise a little bit of cash, but sometimes even when you have a bearish view on the market, it's what is the lesser of the evils and where do you want to be to try to outperform or at least try to go down less than the market. So I think heading into next year, you're going to probably have meager returns across the board. Part of because of, I think, the issue that you're mentioning, which is some of these stocks have already moved a great deal. And I think you get into the second half of next year and multiples are pressured and you have a little bit of an issue. Think about it from this perspective. Say you get 10% earnings growth next year, maybe more, maybe less, who knows? I think that's around consensus. You get a one-point decline in PEs, that's a 5% gain for the S&P 500. You get a two-point decline in PEs, the market's just about flat. So I think your best shot for gains is probably in the first half of the year, but then you're going to contend with all of these issues that I think we're all talking about. But regardless, I think when growth starts to slow, investors will pay a premium for growth wherever they can find it. So when we think about kind of the traditional style box, large, mid, small value growth, where do we want to be? Or at least where do we want to reduce exposure? I think we want to reduce exposure to the areas that are more cyclically focused. Because when you're in a recovery, there's going to be cyclical leadership. When you're in a slowdown, I think strong fundamentals rule the day. And I think next year, especially in the second half, the story is going to be more of slowdown than recovery. So Jeff, I can speak intelligently about a lot of things. You want to talk about Ranger hockey? I'll go toe to toe, brother, all night long. But what I can't speak intelligently about is your client base. With that said, I got to believe there's an incredible amount of pressure for you and other people in the industry to get involved in things that are probably abhorrent to you. And it comes in the form of these meme stocks that we've now talked about for the last 16 months. Can you speak to that? It's interesting because in my world, you would think that would be the case. But when you're managing money for high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals, the demographics of that client base are a little bit older. And that's just the nature of the game for a lot of these RIAs, trust companies, firms like ours. So when you think about the meme stocks, we're hearing less about than you might think. There's less FOMO sort of in that demographic because they don't understand memes or what's going on on Reddit. They don't even know what that stuff is. So we're getting less pressure than you might think. I think people are interested to watch it from the sidelines, but it's nice that we're not seeing that group of clients try to jump into stocks like that. But regardless, we are hearing about it some. And we're talking about GameStop earlier and earnings. We talked about it on Fast Money last night. My quick take for those that are interested or thinking about getting in the stock or maybe they're in the stock and want to get out of the stock. I said it last night. I was like, why are we talking about earnings here? This never had anything to do with earnings. It doesn't have anything to do with earnings now. And I use the phrase, it's basically a caricature of the good news is already priced in mantra. They could not report anything last night that would sustainably increase the price of that stock further than it already is. They're trading at two and a half times sales, stock to trade at 0.6 times sales for the last decade. So forget about it. It's gone sideways the entire year. I think sideways is the absolute best case scenario for a stock like this. So that would just be my word of caution. And I feel like a broken record at this point. I've said it a number of times. I'm shocked that the stock has levitated the way that it has, but here we are. Yeah, interesting. We're not seeing as much pressure there. More pressure on the crypto and digital asset side, though. 
trying to figure out what to do there. So let's talk about it because there's really very few ways in which to express that for people who don't have digital wallets and don't really understand the risks associated with owning some of these tokens or these coins or whatever you want to call them. How are you guys managing that from an institutional basis? So it's been fascinating to see the evolution in our industry in terms of working with retail clients and RIAs and trust companies, money management firms of our type. So it was initially, this stuff is too volatile. Don't touch it. We don't understand it to, okay, we get it, but you're going to have to do it on your own to now there's so much pressure to actually do it in-house and implement it in the portfolios that we're managing for clients. I think just as a broad comment, the fact that there is this massive wall of money sitting at these RIAs and investment companies for these types of people who are dying to get into crypto, that's the bull case to me. You saw BITO start trading. The funds that flowed into that thing were jaw-dropping. And I think it's a perfect example of that wall of money sitting on the sidelines waiting to get exposure to crypto. And I know everybody wants spot exposure and that's the best way to do it. But for now, honestly, we haven't integrated any of these things fully onto our platform. And we're kind of in a full court press trying to figure out where to go. Right now, the futures ETF, it's not a terrible option. It's not going to trade exactly with the spot price. But for companies like ours, it's probably the easiest way to get beta to the space, which is really what people want right now. All right. So you're talking about beta. Let's talk about some stocks that have been just whipping around right here. And if you can't be in crypto, you have to find some stocks or some sectors that you think have asymmetric potential upside. And you know, the problem that I have right now, here's a company that went public this year, DoorDash. We all use this product and we all know that before these companies went public, they were being subsidized by all the VC cash to grow their user base. Look at DoorDash. It's a $56 billion market cap company, and it just sold off 35%. You can do that math here. And I look at this sort of volatility, and so this is going to be a company that's going to be around for a very long time, and we're likely to see more consolidation. There's already been a bunch of consolidation here. How do you think about some of these sorts of stories that there might be a bigger washout, but 10 years from now, they're very likely to be the next trillion-dollar company, if you think about it? Are you guys looking at some of these kind of names that have been out of favor this year. I'd throw like a Zoom in there. It's a single product sort of company. Are you looking at some of these things that might be able to rebound in 2022? On the individual stock side, what we do from a strategy perspective is far more conservative. It's a lot less about story stocks or looking at cash flows five to 10 years out. It's more of a, what have you shown me lately? And a company that we feel like is going to be stable and generate cash flows and profits over the next couple of years. That being said, I think there are a lot of opportunities to be had in some of these companies. You're seeing companies that were trading at ridiculous valuations that you wouldn't want to go anywhere near. Now you're seeing the pendulum swing in the other direction as it often does. So I think you have to be smart about it. And when you're looking around at these sorts of names that have been whipping back and forth, you have to size them appropriately or you'll never be able to stick with them through the volatility. When I talk to our clients who maybe want to buy a stock on their own, that's what we tell them. Sizing is really critical here because number one all the time for me is behavioral finance. If you size a position too big, even if to your point in the next 10 years, this is going to be a trillion dollar company, you'll never make it there if it's too large a part of your portfolio and the volatility continues to be what it's been. So that's the advice that I would give to most people. Get exposure to these names, but get exposure in a way that you can live with because the volatility that we've recently seen, this is not the end of it and it will continue that way for a while. 
You could just buy ARK Innovation ETF. Any thoughts there? Because Guy and Danny and I have been talking about that a whole heck of a lot. And aside from Tesla, which is high single digits percentage of that ETF, almost everything else in the top 10 of the holdings are down, you know, 30, 40% from their, uh, to their 52 week highs. I like it for a bounce here because I think you're probably seeing a lot of tax loss selling in things like that. So I think a lot of that may have run its course and you could see a bounce in a lot of those names just because of the magnitude of the sell-off. I don't like ARC and those names as a tactical call into 22 because of my thesis that growth is going to win out, but it's going to be profitable growth. And I think that's what investors are going to be looking for. They're going to differentiate between growth that is not profitable or growth that looks like it might be profitable, but not for a while versus some of the companies that we all know too well that continue to produce profits now. So play it for a bounce sell-off in a lot of those names have been pretty dramatic. Tax loss selling may be over, but I don't think it's going to fit into what investors are generally going to be looking for in 22. So Jeff, you talked about the level of sophistication that your clients have. Obviously, different probably age bucket, which is great. And this is not to cast aspersion on any other investors out there. But I'll say this, I think over the last couple of years, investors have gotten used to a rate of return that they're probably not going to get moving forward, in my opinion. To try to get that, you're going to have to get pushed further out this risk curve. How difficult is that to navigate in your job? It's probably the number one most difficult thing. And it's the hardest conversations that we have with clients. I think any good investment shop who works with individuals, they're going to start with the financial plan first. So let's figure out what you think you need your portfolio to do. And then we'll work backwards and figure out how much risk you need to take. I think a lot of people start the other way and they focus on this short-term risk. What kind of annual volatility are you comfortable with? And then great, in 10 years, your portfolio will spit out what it spits out. And you may be in a world of hurt because you can't pay for retirement or you can't pay for your kid's college or whatever the case may be. So we go to great lengths to try to figure out what is the real return target first and then figure out how much risk you need to take. So to your point, the risk you need to take is a lot higher than it once was. Potentially not so surprising when you think about what you could earn in treasuries in the 1990s versus what you can earn now. I think we did an analysis and don't hold me to these numbers, but to earn a 6% return based on historical average returns for stocks and bonds you could have something like 85% of your portfolio in fixed income. Now we think to earn that same return, you probably need about 70% of your portfolio in equities. So when we talk about a balanced portfolio, we talk about a 70-30 portfolio now for that very reason. We just think the risk paradigm, return paradigm is different and investors need to understand that. And it's not only with individuals, it's with institutions too. If you look at public pension funds and their return targets, I think 70 or 80% of them are 6.5% or higher. So if you're properly guiding these clients and managing their portfolios in a way that actually aligns with their goals, you need to figure out a way to convince them to take more risk because there's really no two ways about it. There's no magic bullet that's going to all of a sudden create less risk in a portfolio and still be able to meet those return targets. It's very hard. I know people try to pet play in alternatives and do private equity, but there is no silver bullet. So it's really about having that conversation in terms of realistic expectations for return and then calibrating the risk associated with that. And that's the biggest challenge that we deal with all the time. And there is no great answer to it. And it almost seems like an oxymoron that you say, okay, well, valuations are high. So now we want you to take more risk. That's the hard thing. So Jeff, do you think there's been a bit of a paradigm shift? 
Since I entered the business in the late 90s, the stock market then was called a bubble and it kept on inflating and the returns all through the 90s were 20% plus. And then we went through a protracted bear market in 2000, 2001. And I will remember this. 2002 was actually the year that felt the worst in the stock market. There was no low, low enough. And sooner or later, it just ran out of sellers. And then we had this explosive rally and then we had the global financial crisis and the market topped out in 2007. 08 felt really bad. It felt like the end of the world, even 09 in the beginning. But then we went on this tremendous tear of returns. I think even in the years where we had taper tantrums and all that sort of stuff, I don't even think there was a down year in there. And so we have this black swan event. No one saw this thing coming. And we had a 35% peak to trough decline in the S&P 500. I think it was the quickest that the market had ever declined. And we closed up last year. And we closed up this year. So we've had these double-digit returns for the last few years. So when you think about risk-taking, it just seems like everyone's just kind of shruggy emoji here. And is that why crypto is this kind of new thing? Because it's really hard to figure out where that next pocket of asymmetric upside risk is. But that makes me really nervous too, because look at what's going on in digital art. Look at what's going on in real estate. Look what's going on all over the place. Any risk asset that's not bolted down is seeing just crazy returns right now. Yeah, and it's sort of a cliche, but I think it's important. And its valuation is a horrible timing tool. It doesn't mean that we can't have a number of years where stocks go crazy, crypto goes crazy, art goes crazy. But if you're planning for these clients over a 10-year time horizon, that's where you really see the correlation between valuation and returns reach its peak. So fine. Over the next couple of years, you may continue to see that. And I think really what you're saying in a lot of ways is Tina lives and there's no other place to put your money. So you're looking for a return wherever you can find it. And it gets riskier and riskier until all of a sudden it blows up. And I can't operate in a paradigm where valuation no longer matters because I think it does. Sometimes it just takes a long time for it to actually matter. So I'm going to say something, and I know you watch Fast Money, you participate often as well, but if you do pay attention, you know my views on the Fed. I think they're the biggest bunch of dipshits, yes, I use the word, on the face of the earth. And I think a lot of people will say, incorrectly in my opinion, the biggest risk to the market is a Fed mistake or a Fed misstep. I would submit that the mistakes have been made. The biggest risk to the market is the Fed actually does what they should have been doing all along. Can you speak to that? I think that's exactly right. I think I tweeted something out maybe a week or so ago, and I basically said, fine, they ditched the word tapering. It seemed like a good political move. Powell was getting railed every time he used it, fine. But do I really think his views have changed that much on inflation? And I think the answer is no. So I think they're going to continue to be really patient at their own peril because they've generally missed the window. Everybody's talking about it, speed up and tapering, and that's fine. And I think the market will largely digest that. But they're going to get to a point, just as I said earlier, where the economy starts to downshift a little bit. And I think there's a great case to be made that at least inflation starts to trend lower. And then you're talking about the Fed wanting to get off zero and try to hike rates. That's problematic. And fine, maybe the economy can handle it, but I don't know that the market can handle it. You've seen the curve flatten so quickly over the past couple of months. I don't think it's flattened this quickly outside of a recession or some sort of really stressful time in the economy. So the market is telling you that they're pulling forward rate hike expectations at the expense of longer term rate hikes because growth is going to suffer once the Fed decides to move. 
So the market's telling you the answer. And the answer is the Fed is in a really bad spot. And I think the potential for a policy mistake is high. Now, maybe the Fed realizes that. So maybe the base case is that they hike more slowly than the market is currently pricing in. You see the curve re-steepen and things sort of muddle through. But to your point, it's problematic. And I think they're sort of in a bad spot. Well, they've only themselves to blame. Now I want to play a little game with you before we get out of here. You know, when football teams are on a bye week, they tend to self-scout, right? They scout themselves. So I want you to self-scout Jeff Mills, the lacrosse player at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dan, I'm going to give you a few minutes to think about that. I want to ask you the same question, Dan Nathan. Jeff Mills first. Scout Jeff Mills, the lacrosse player, please. Wow. Okay. Let me think here. So he's not very big. So you could probably push him around a little bit, get in his gloves, get physical with him. He might go home crying to his mom. However, he's extremely fast and you'll have to chase him all over the field. And you'll probably be clutching the bottom of your shorts after the first quarter because you can't catch him. So that that's it. I love that scouting report. It's fair. I think you're underestimating yourself, but I hear you. I like what you did there. Dan Nathan, now you're the crease defense, whatever you lax people call it. You're the defenseman against Jeff Mills, who was probably this crazy attack dude that lit up the scoreboard. How are you playing Jeff Mills? What do you call when everything's on the field? You have a name for that. Yeah, I would yard sale him, I think. That would have been happening. Listen, I was an attackman, but if I was playing defense against that Jeff Mills, that scouting report that I just heard, you know, the problem that I would have had is that my stick would have been in the middle of his back because I'm 6'2", and he's, what, 5'6", or something like that. So (laughs) he would have been a tough guy to guard here. Now, I'll say one thing about my lacrosse career. It wasn't particularly illustrious, and I will tell you matter-of-factly that my skill level and my athleticism, if it was transported to this day right now, I don't even think I would have made the JV of a high school team. So Jeff came in a different era. They were far better athletes. They were far better stick skills and all that sort of stuff. So he would have done just fine against me. I think Dan and I were more Smokey Joe's all-stars than lacrosse field all-stars. <laughs> That's some Philadelphia reference I'm sure that I'm not familiar with. I'll say this. My favorite part about watching lacrosse is the one half of the field is just stand there bullshitting with each other <laughs> as the play is on the other end of the field. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Guys just standing with their sticks at their sides, ask them how the night before was. It's crazy. Dan? Now it's a lot more than that. Hey, listen, we could go on all day about Jeff Mills' lax prowess, but like you started out the conversation, Guy Adami, he has been a great addition to the team on Fast Money. I've really enjoyed getting to know him, and I really appreciate you coming on the tape here, Jeff Mills. Yeah, of course. I appreciate it, guys. Hope to see you back up at the NASDAQ in 22. You're the man, Jeff Mills. Best to your family. Best to you. Looking forward to seeing you. Thanks for joining us on the tape. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.